0: Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofranievich. AI or artificial intelligence might seem like the stuff of science fiction novels, but it's increasingly being used across global healthcare systems as a way to make timely diagnoses and recommend patient-specific treatments. So what do we need to know about AI in healthcare? Is it something that we should welcome or are some of us right to exercise caution? With me to discuss, I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests. James Zhou is Assistant Professor of Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University. Hi, James.
1: Hi, great to meet you.
0: And David Leslie, Director of Ethics and Responsible Innovation Research at the Alan Turing Institute, who's an expert on ethics in AI. Hi.
2: Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: So, James, first things first, tech is constantly improving in sophistication. For example, those with type 1 diabetes will soon be able to monitor their blood sugar levels using wearable tech. What new things can AI do that can't be done with existing technology?
1: Yes, I think it's a really exciting area. In the intersection of AI and biomedicine and healthcare. Right? So I think AI has been enabling a lot of very exciting advances, both in basic research. So here's things about like alpha fold that enables us to really understand protein structures at a more basic level and higher resolution. And at the healthcare side, I think there's you know, technologies like the wearables that you mentioned. There are also other technologies that allow people, for example, to take photos of their skin lesions to detect whether those are likely to be skin cancer or not. Right? So I think these are the kinds of technologies that can be really addressing some very fundamental and very impactful healthcare challenges.
0: And David, in some trials, AI has been shown to reduce risk and increase the speed of diagnosis. In what areas of healthcare is AI already being used, especially in the UK?
2: I mean, there are numerous different clinical applications, both in terms of on the predictive end. So thinking about ways that one can sort of do risk stratification and in, in, in diagnosis and prognosis There's uh, multiple applications that. Are, that have been or are being developed in terms of histopathology, so thinking about how one can look at digital slides and, and understand whether or not they have characteristics of being malignant. Um, other computer vision techniques that uh, can, say, look at uh, chest X-rays and identify potential areas for, uh, that, ha- that might have lung cancer. Um, so there, there's just a, a numerous range of, of applications.
0: I noticed that since 2016, Google's DeepMind firm has been working with Moorfields Eye Hospital in the UK to streamline how eye conditions are identified. Are there certain parts of the body, perhaps, or certain kinds of healthcare problems that AI is really well suited to tackle?
1: Yeah, the kinds of AI that's been more readily available is more related to computer vision so far because that's where the kind of AI advances, and especially with deep neural networks have been further along over the last five, to 10 years. And when we think about computer vision, the kinds of medical data that seems the most amenable for computer vision are often images that are of surface body parts that are more readily available to be captured. So so areas like dermatology, that's where it's easier to apply AI. So pathology, the example that David mentioned, is also relatively easy to apply AI to because they're... Now there's already available imaging techniques, right? With these histopathology that generate very high quality, high-resolution images. The other areas are areas like X-ray, like mammography, for example. That's where people have developed and deployed AI algorithms to do early diagnostics of breast cancer from these mammography images. So generally we think about areas where there's readily available imaging data, that's places where AI is more readily to be used.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that and maybe sort of widen the lens a little bit and say, if there are areas where there's a high dimensional data, so data, data that has many features that, that might be combined in complex ways to expose meaningful patterns that, that give us kind of leverage in, in predicting things about the physical body, things about the progression of disease these data driven systems, these deep learning systems these these complex algorithms are really well placed to in a sense pick up those patterns. The way that humans understand and interpret data is by holding you know several variables together at a time and there's there's a lot of interpretive leverage that we can have as kind of humans in clinical environments in, in understanding disease history and other things about disease but there are certain other things that we're not as good at, if you will, as these AI systems, these, these data-driven systems, which is to say, hang, holding together, you know, a hundred, two hundred more or more features and finding the patterns, which then ultimately are interpreter-dependent because these are clinical support systems, usually. So the doctor is, you know, making judgments based upon the information that these systems are supporting them with. But, but generally speaking, it's it's those kind of. Situations where there's a very big feature space that, that AI um, is is very effective in.
0: COVID presented a huge challenge for our health services, not just in delivery, but in terms of storing data and patient records. How can AI complement the practical running of healthcare services?
1: Yeah, so I think one area where here at Stanford where we've used AI a lot during COVID is in telehealth and telemedicine. Mm. Right. Uh, so the idea there is that you know because of the pandemic, it's hard for patients to come in and see the doctors, to see their physicians in person. Right. So during the pandemic, there's actually been a huge growth, like I mean, a hundred x increase in the amount of televisits, whereby the, the patient can see their doctors you know, through Zoom and through video calls without having to leave their home. That's actually very convenient for the patient because they don't have to drive two hours to come to the hospital and for a half an hour appointment. So I think the telehealth areas where AI can be very useful or because a lot of the data, the kind of interactions between the patient and doctors through these video calls are already digitized, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been working on different AI algorithms here at Stanford, for example, one place where we use AI is to use computer visions to improve the quality of the images that the patients actually send to their doctors, right? So that the doctors can make better diagnosis, even without having to see the patient in person. Right, so so that's actually an interesting challenge because it turns out that you know, like people like us are maybe are very good at taking photos for Facebook or for Instagram, but we're less good at taking high quality photos for clinical purposes. Mm. Right, so we developed an AI algorithm called True Image that helps patients to take better quality photos, so that it makes these telehealth visits more more efficient and more reliable.
0: I used to live in Edinburgh before I lived in London, and moving between England and Scotland. My patient data records were basically a complete mess with some things in some places, right. some in another. Can AI help us better store our data and ensure that perhaps it's kept more safe?
2: I think, I mean, there are numerous opportunities to create those types of efficiencies with the various techniques of, of AI. But uh, to be honest, I think that those challenges, uh, say, of data interoperability and of having a well-organized health system that is able to sort of interlink the different dimensions of the data generating sites. I think that that is a, a problem that that should be focused on by 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 humans, uh, first and foremost, that we, we have to be careful, I think, not to revert to what sometimes called technological solutionism, which is to think that AI can solve all problems. There are certain things I think that we, we need to start from our own contexts and, and the various levels of disorganization that come from our own practices and try to figure that out with each other rather than to, to, to sort of reach for the, the AI as the, as the deus ex machina.
0: We'll come on to talk about that a little bit more later on because I know both of you are doing really interesting work about biases and data. But you mentioned, David, that AI has to be part of a well-organised healthcare system as a whole. The UK government has been a very keen supporter of AI since long before the pandemic, and it recently announced a £64 million plan to strengthen clinical healthcare research. Why are governments such a big fan of rolling out AI in healthcare?
2: I mean, part of it is that it's almost intrinsic to the character of the technology that it holds the promise to deliver a huge amount of public benefit, and and so if it's pursued with the public interest as the driver, and also health equity as as the driver, then we 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 might see a world where these systems contribute to the advancement of insights in, as I mentioned before, diagnostics and prognostics in and epidemiology in various elements of genomics and, and understandings that that come from understanding complex structures of proteins, as James mentioned, the alpha-fold technology, so supporting the research environment, and also in drug discovery, too. I mean, there, there, there are huge potentials for the mobilization of the various te- AI techniques to advance the science and advance the clinical environment. And so, yeah, I think that the the investment, I think, is, is oriented to, to that world where the, the, the innovation is being kind of directed towards the public interest. I agree with David,
1: and I'll just add that the economics of AI makes it potentially very compelling for the governments, especially in the healthcare space. Right? So, for example, in the US, there's, a, there's really a, a shift in, in the healthcare going from you know, pay-per-service to more like value-based care, right? So instead of paying like $1,000 for each X-ray you take, you want to maybe pay a bundle so that the overall quality of care is improved. And that actually aligns the interest of both like the providers, so the hospitals, and also the, you know, the insurance companies to really improve the quality of the care to individual patients. right? And when you look at the hospitals, they actually see there's a lot of value in using AI to potentially reduce many of the repetitive tasks that currently physicians and nurses have to spend time on and also to improve the quality of the care by perhaps like triaging patients so that patients get better, uh, the more appropriate services faster. And also they use AI as second readers. To improve the reliability of the advices that are given to the patients.
0: I'm glad you mentioned about the economics because the AI industry in healthcare is a booming global industry, with much of the advancements being made by private companies rather than states or nations. What are some of the challenges when specialized AI companies make tech that will be used then in national healthcare programs?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And one recent trend in AI, especially is in that a lot of the AI models are becoming larger and larger and takes more time, more cost to train to develop. Right. So that's actually what's driven a lot of the shift in the AI developments toward the private industry. So, for example, some of the models that we've been working with are these very large language models, which are basically trained all of the text that can be scraped from the internet, right? Like a hundred times the size of Wikipedia were hundreds of millions of images. So these very large models, it's actually very difficult for public university researchers to develop and to train these models because this requires a huge amount of resources in the orders of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to train. So that's why many of these larger models, like GPT-3 type of models, are being developed and trained by private companies. Uh, now, many of those models after being developed and then being studied by academics like us and then being deployed and further developed by researchers for applications in healthcare, in medicine, and other disciplines. So I think we're seeing this really interesting shift just because of the resource intensiveness of the training IAM models. That's a lot of the advances are being driven by private industry.
2: I think, and just just to just to add a little bit of a critical twist on that, I think that You know, at the level of the actual political economy of of the AI ecosystem, the way in which the high entry cost to developing these very kind of information processing intensive and data intensive systems, all of this does present issues with regard to the, the ultimate access of being able to develop the technologies in an equitable way that is serving the public interest. For instance, there are challenges in, in the research environment in academia, where if you don't have sort of access to the high powered compute and you don't have access to big data sets, uh, it's much harder to, to sort of innovate. And, and so just, I think that there's a, a real need to sort of create balance within the, the innovation ecosystem where there are opportunities beyond just the private sector to really d- develop these technologies in in ways that uh, might not be, say, oriented to sh- you know shareholder interest or, or the or the or a company's bottom line.
0: So, David, earlier you mentioned about technological solutionism. We know that AI can only be as good as the data that shapes its algorithms women and ethnic minorities seem to be particularly at risk from biases in data. Why is
2: that? I mean, I think that when we when we think about the sort of wider picture of inequity in healthcare and and health inequity in general, uh, we really need to understand that these systems are being trained on data that's drawn from real-world patterns, real-world patterns of use of healthcare systems and real-world patterns of accessing clinical environments. And so really where the the pain points emerge is in these kind of real-world and historical patterns of health inequity and, and discrimination. So we can think of who is able to equitably access the healthcare system, who faces potentially discriminatory healthcare processes, so who's excluded from certain processes in virtue of uh, sensitive traits or characteristics such as race or gender or socioeconomic status, who in a clinical environment is subjected to potential bias in clinical decision-making, right? So thinking about, for instance, in the examples you used, it it, it has been well studied and, and now is well known that there are differentials in the way that clinicians might judge the pain of uh, black female versus other gender or ethnicity um, in the same way that uh, there'll be different levels of of diagnostic testing ordered by clinicians based upon certain biases that they might have um, with regard to minoritized ethnicities. And so one thing to remember is these existing patterns of discrimination can easily be baked into data sets And they can easily also be reflected in the way that the data sets themselves are just usually a selection of a portion of a population that has access. And so you'll also have sampling biases where the data sets that are being used to train the AI systems are are imbalanced. They simply don't sufficiently reflect those who who haven't been able to access the healthcare system in the past. And I can skip one example just to follow up on what David mentioned.
1: So, so recently we were studying a lot of these, um, you know, dermatology AI algorithms. So basically, like you take photos of your skin and the algorithm will tell you whether it's skin cancer or not. So there's a bunch of commercial vendors that have been trying to develop those algorithms and there are a lot of interest in deploying them. So we tested some of these algorithms on Stanford patients' data because there's interest in actually deploying these algorithms here locally. Interestingly, we found that the algorithm, they all had very good performance in the original reported studies, right? It's like accuracy above 0.9. But when we actually tested them on Stanford patients, the accuracy and performance dropped to like you know about 0.6, right? So a huge drop-off in the model's performance. So the mystery is like, why did that happen? Right. Uh and when we look more deeply into this, it actually turned out that all of these algorithms um for detecting skin cancer, they have much worse performance when they're applied to images from darker skin patients, right? Uh, so the especially the sensitivity of these models, sensitivity here just means that you know, if the patient actually has skin cancer, how likely is the algorithm to detect that they have skin cancer, right? That's that's really important. The sensitivity is actually very poor on images from the darker skin patients. You now, we, we try to figure out why that happened. When we dug more deeply into this, it turned out that's actually the original data sets that's used to both to train these models and also to evaluate the performance of these models has, in many cases, uh, like zero images from dark skin patients, and and that's really quite problematic, right? Uh, so that's why like if, if the algorithm doesn't see these kind of data in its training process, then it doesn't really learn about the the, the patterns of disease in these darker skin patients. Mm -hmm. This is an example of how, you know, the imbalances in the actual training data, in this case, the lack of diverse skin tones in the training data, detrimentally affected the performance of the model, which then in turn affected its performance on real patients that we have here.
0: So it's clearly really important to collect a wide range of data and to disaggregate that data. Is it ever possible to have a wholly neutral algorithm?
1: I think it's a, it's an interesting question. I think the nuance here is that I'm not sure if we want it's even desirable to have a neutral algorithm in the sense that you know there are lots of specific phenotypes and features right, that are specific for, for, for different subgroups. Right? For example, for skin tone, right So uh, people with darker skin or lighter skins, they actually have different distributions of diseases, mm. right? uh, because people with lighter skin are more likely to get sunburns. Right. So there you actually want the algorithm, if it's really good to be able to really leverage the information that's present in the different skin tones to make its predictions. You don't want the algorithm to be, let's say, skin tone blind, because that's actually throwing away useful information. Mm-hmm. Within that, and then you still want the algorithm to really do well, right, across the, the light skin and dark skin by recognizing the different types of skin diseases that are prevalent in different groups. And, and similarly, you know, with, with other information like gender as well, right? I don't think we want the algorithms to be entirely gender blind, depends on the application, right? If it's doing recommendations of clothing or books, maybe you do want to use the information as personalized for each of the individuals to make those better recommendations.
2: I'd even, uh, I mean, go, go, go a step further in, in, in saying that I think it's a, a, maybe a, a false ideal to think that um, neutrality can exist in human artifacts, right? So technology is a human artifact. We are creating the um, machinery of the algorithm. We are determining the labels, the 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 the, the way that we define features and and the different the, the different categories that we're that we're calling data, and and so I think that the perhaps the goal should rather be to sort of optimally mitigate the biases that could arise from these complex socio-technical processes, those processes of, of human intervention and, and decision-making. And just to think uh, out loud about the, some of the basics of, of the way we categorize data, think of, let's think about, you know, race or gender and, and the ways in which the various complexities of, of racialization and categorization can or cannot um, pick up essential self-identification of people, right? So for instance, if you've got uh, a system that you've got uh, the racial categories uh, as white or non-white or white, black, and and other, right? There, There is a high risk there, for instance, that you'll have categories that are simply erased that should be better discriminated, better uh, differentiated. So instances where... Instead of having three categories that carve up this, this sort of conceptual measurable space of race, you want to have, or you should have more categories that would pick up the essential differentiations that will lead to the different performance of systems for different groups. And so it's all just to say that we, we really need to, I think, go about understanding these systems as, as human creations and, As human creations, in in just the sense that we're not neutral, the technologies won't be neutral.
0: So the NHS is trialling the use of algorithmic impact assessments, or AIAs, to reduce the chance of biases in data. James, what are they and how do we reduce bias more widely?
1: Yeah, so I think when we think about the bias in the algorithms, uh, uh, as our examples sort of shows, that I think a lot of that comes back to the thinking about the biases and, and the in and the underlying data sets that goes into training these models. And then one area that I find really interesting is just like what are the data that goes into training different AI models, especially in healthcare in medical context. Uh, so we did actually some surveys of just where are the different sources of data. Actually, and it turned out that a lot of the data are not, not publicly available. And they're mostly owned by sort of private hospitals or private companies are so it's very hard to then go back and to audit those private data sets and see how do they affect the biases of the underlying models.
0: Last summer, over a million people opted out of NHS Digital, sharing their anonymized data with researchers and healthcare companies. David, do you think that fears that healthcare data can be misused are founded?
2: I think that the 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 culture of public trust with regard to data use right now simply doesn't exist, and I think that part of the reason for this is that uh, over the last you know ten years there have been many examples of of uh, reasons why people shouldn't sort of trust the the extraction and uh, application of their data, and so I think that there is a consideration of of that recent history that we need to sort of factor into the way people are are relating to the use of their data nowadays but just to say there've been plenty of studies to that reflect that people especially in the UK are very willing to share their health data for the public interest for for research that will benefit them and others and and future generations
0: of course not all healthcare happens in hospitals and there is a lot of hope but also controversy over the use of AI at home in things like mental health support apps. How sophisticated are they? Do you think that tech could ever be a useful replacement for human medical
2: professionals? I think, I mean, for me, this goes back to to, to the, the issues surrounding sort of technological solutionism. I think that we need to understand the supportive role that these systems can play, as as one which at the other on the other side of it. Always will involve the, the the type of clinical knowledge um, that's brought to bear by by humans that can understand context, that have a a, a real sense of the specificity of, it, of an individual patient's circumstances, and are 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 able to provide interpersonal care to patients. So I I, I just I would hesitate to to sort of look to a future where we we think of AI as potentially replacing doctors. Uh, I think that AI has an immense possibility of providing opportunities to advance and improve healthcare and research insight. But in terms of replacing the human, I I have a lot more skepticism and reservation.
1: Yeah, I think we like to think about building AI to augment doctors rather than to replace doctors. I'm
0: interested in what you were saying there about Augmenting and helping doctors rather than replacing them, because a system failure that leads to misdiagnosis is a big fear amongst many people. Do you think we're more at risk with the state of AI at the moment of getting false positives rather than false negatives, and are the risks equally weighed in both?
1: So I think it's a interesting question, and the cost of false positives and false negatives could be very different. Depends on different disease applications. For example, if we're talking about some sort of early diagnosis, like a false negative could actually be quite costly, right? Because if you tell people, oh, you don't have skin cancer and the patients sort of go away and they don't check up on it. And then if they do actually have skin cancer or have some other breast cancer, then that can be very deadly if you don't catch it early on. Whereas a false positive, like you say, oh, have skin cancer, let's get a biopsy to check it out. Even if that turns out not to be malignant, that's, you know, that still doesn't hurt the patient too much on the whole scale of things. Now if we're talking about more later stage, right, like things like treatment recommendations. So after a patient already has detected with cancer, right, then how do you figure out what's what's the best treatment to give to that patient or detecting different subtypes of cancer? There the balance of the cost can be become very different, right? Where whereby the false positives could be more costly if you're telling them like a the wrong treatment. So I think it depends on where we are in this entire clinical workflow from early to late stage, the balances of these predictions can be very different, and the algorithms need to, to be able to adjust to that. Most of the time, when we develop AI models, we're just training it in isolation. So we want the AI to work well by itself, right? So when you evaluate how well the AI works, it's often like, how what's the accuracy of the model by itself? But that's actually very different from how the algorithms are being used, where the algorithms are not acting by itself, but acting in a team of humans plus the algorithm. And that, I think, requires a very different mode of of, and different objectives for developing these AI models, because we've seen a lot of examples where an AI algorithm that works really well by itself is actually not the best AI algorithm in terms of augmenting and helping the humans to make better decisions. Right. So if you actually want to develop AI that would be the best team player, then that requires a different way of, of training these models than w- how we typically do it now.
0: To finish then, we've seen how AI is slowly being rolled out in different services. Do either of you foresee a future where a health service with AI integrated in the way you described, James, is the standard? And when?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really exciting area, um, and I think there will be will continue to be rapid innovations in AI in the healthcare space. I would say we're still in the relatively early stages of actually developing and deploying AI. Right? We are just seeing that you know, there's maybe a couple hundred of these AI algorithms that have started to go through different government regulatory approvals. Some of them have gone through the approvals now, but many of these have not been widely deployed in the healthcare system yet. But I think definitely the potential is there, especially if these algorithms become more fair and more responsible and more reliable, then there will be more of trust in the healthcare system toward using these algorithms. I think
2: that we're at the very beginning point of of a long journey. And, And it's a long journey that will, for the systems to be developed responsibly and to be used responsibly, it will demand a kind of cultural transformation, which is to say, we'll need to bring the technology closer to the sort of critical approaches to human practice that emerge from being aware that these are humanly produced uh, systems and technologies.
0: James, David, thank you both ever so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having us. Pleasure.
0: And listeners, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Yelena Sofreniewicz signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Yelena Sofranievich, the producers Jacob Archbold and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.